This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. This is episode 185 of the podcast. I am two weeks past my second dose of the vaccine, out and about in the world, back down in Longmont, Colorado, um, where I was about a year ago talking to Eric Wallace of Left Hand right as the pandemic was in the swing of things. Um, Today I'm talking to Ryan Wibby, president and brewmaster of Wibby Brewing down here in Longmont, a lager-focused brewer. Welcome to the podcast, Ryan. Awesome. Thanks for having me on. We're sitting outside enjoying the beautiful spring Colorado weather. It's sunny and gorgeous, and uh, I'm sure you're going to hear some trucks and uh, and whatnot <laughs> rolling around in the background. But man, it's a beautiful beer garden out here, and uh, we're going to enjoy it. Uh, we're going to talk about lager brewing, of course, because because uh, that is what Ryan specializes in. And I think we're going to talk about dark lagers in particular, because I know we've talked a lot about pale lagers, and I think it'd be fun, Excellent. you guys, uh, and dark and amber lagers, because uh, you all have won a number of medals uh, over the years at GABF for everything from your Hellas to, uh, uh, most recently, the Volksbier Vienna lager. Yep. And um, yeah, I think even for Moondor Dunkel? Yeah, we've won two medals so far. Uh, 2017 was our first one. was a silver for Moondor Dunkel. Um, and then I took that stage and I proposed to my now wife, which was uh, the most incredible thing I've ever done. So, um, And then this past year during the during the shutdown, uh, we received a gold for Volksbier Vienna, which was incredible and just as much fun winning a medal from the, cou- uh, the comfort of my couch uh, as it was being up on stage. So... Absolutely. Anyway, we're going to talk about all those things. Before we do that, as the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling, G&D Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, reliability, and dedication to their customers' craft. New this year, redundancy meets efficiency. G&D's micro-channel condensers are built with all-aluminum construction, which eliminates galvanic corrosion. Using half the refrigerant of conventional condensers with fewer braze connections translates to a lower GWP and less opportunity for leaks. Call GD Chillers to today, discuss your project, or reach out directly at gdchillers.com. Also, this episode is brought to you by Crisp Scottish Pale Ale Malt. Crisp Scottish Pale Ale Malt is a workhorse of many a brewery and is at home in a variety of beer styles. Crisp sources the lowest nitrogen spring barley from farmers in Fife up to Moray. During malting, high cast moistures and a balance of optimal germination time and temperature results in an even well-modified malt with rich color and a balanced sweet malt flavor, which is ideally suited to ale brewing. Visit bsgcraftbrewing.com for more information on crisp Scottish pale ale malt or call 1-800-374-2739. So, Ryan, let's talk about your brewing history. Um, what uh, what were the steps that led you, uh, you know, through your career up to, to launching Whippy Brewing? Uh, yeah, it started out um, while I was studying chemistry at Ithaca College in upstate New York, Uh I was doing an internship for a summer there, and one of our professors, Dr. Michael Hoff, uh, decided to teach us the chemistry of home of beer making, and we brewed a batch of beer in the lab, and I was like, you can do this with a chemistry degree? That sounds awesome. Uh, I had grown up in my dad's lab doing work for him in the summers, and 
lab work wasn't as interesting to me as um, making beer was. Um, so I remember making my first batch of beer at, in the lab and doing it at home. And I realized with that with that first couple of batches of homebrew, I was like, I want to do this for the rest of my life, but also own my own business. Um, and I knew I couldn't just do that straight out of the start. Uh, as 22 years old, I don't think anybody would want me running a brewery at that time. Um, so I started working at uh, a couple different breweries uh, on the East Coast. Um, Iron Hill Brewery and Restaurant. Sure. Um, really great place to learn right. the, the realm of just beer. I think the first year I worked as a professional brewer, we brewed over 200 different styles of beer, which is really cool. Right. Um, and then I moved back up to Ithaca, New York and worked at the Ithaca Beer Company. Um, saw them grow from like ten to 15,000 barrels of beer. Good old flower power. Oh, I love flower. I still wear the same flower power shirt I had <laughs> when I was like 23. I'm glad yeah, I can yeah. still fit into it. Um, but at that point, um, I realized I needed some formal brewing education. Right. And that's when I found the VLB in Berlin. Um, what I really liked about the school there, um, first of all, you're in Germany, which is awesome for beer culture. <laughs> uh, but it was also directed more towards... You know, AB InBev Brewers, uh, so it's very technology science focused, uh, which I really enjoyed. Um, and I was in, I was there for the six month program. Two months into it, I was like, I'm not leaving after six months. So I uh, did an internship with them uh, for four months afterwards and developed some of my own beers. Um, this is kind of when that light bulb moment happened for me. Um, we had Matt Brindelson from Firestone Walker come over and uh, do a... Uh, that guy. Uh, yeah. he's, he's all right. <laughs> Everybody knows him. <laughs> and um, he did a hop expo with us, uh, you know, with American hops. And, you know, we got to make our own beer. And the challenge was getting in groups. And you had to take a traditional German lager and make it with American hops. Huh. And that was the, the birth child of our IPL. Um, so it was our, our group was like five Americans, uh, uh two Japanese people, uh, somebody from Mexico, uh, and a Belgian person creating this Bach beer that was made with, you know, Citra or Simcoe, Mosaic, Centennial, Cascade, and Crystal Hops. And, I mean, it had the smoothness and the crispness of a traditional German Bach, but had, as soon as you opened the bottle, like you can tell it was made by Americans. It had American hop flavor and aroma to it. And I just saw that kind of combination of lagers and the crispness and the drinkability and the American hop ingenuity and creative ingredients that we could use and saw the opportunity there. So I just started pursuing that. Um, and from there, I had to pay some bills when I came back home. <laughs> Obviously, after being at school. So I took a job at the uh, Shoots Brewery in Bend, Oregon, which is a uh, sure. really great brewery, very large brewery also. You were able to pay bills working on a brewer's salary? Uh, <laughs> It was amazing. I actually saved money wow. while working wow. for uh, for a large brewery. Like That's that. great. It's great. Um, Credit to Deschutes that they pay people all right. <laughs> yes, it was the best, uh, the highest paid job I had for yeah. many years. Yeah. Um, and then just seeing uh, with a large brewery like that, what I didn't really like as much is you're not interacting with the ingredients, you know, on a day to day basis. You're more right. monitoring computers and stuff like that. Um, so. Me, that's when my business partner, Ted, uh, approached me about starting a business. Um, he wasn't the first person, but he was the most persistent person. Um, and so I started writing a business plan, and I knew I only wanted to make lagers because that's the beer I prefer to drink and brew. Um, so I made a couple recipes and kind of went from there. And so you guys launched Whibby Brewing. Yep. Um, you know, how, with this idea that you're going to brew lagers, 
Um, how did you, you know, develop uh, an initial lineup of, of beers for the brewery? How did you envision what that was going to be and what that mix was going to look like? Um, so I knew we needed to take lagers, but after spending a lot of time in Europe, I didn't want to make anything that was just a traditional beer because people over there have been making that, those types of Pilsners and Helles and, and Dunkels um, for hundreds and hundreds of years. And they will, no matter how hard I try, if I try to recreate those types of beers, it just wouldn't be the same. So I wanted to take the, you know, to have the base in the tradition and then add my own spin on it. Um, so I, one of the first recipes I made was um, Light Shine Hellas, which is pretty typical Hellas beer, but we add Centennial hops instead of any, you know, German or European right. hop. Um, and it's a little bit more hop forward than a lot of the, the other products that you'll see in that same category. Um, and then I really kind of started hitting my stride after that, seeing how well that tasted. And uh, Moondor Dunkel was another recipe uh, that I came up with. And it was making a Dunkel lager, but then we threw cacao nibs in instead of hops. And the, the cacao nibs, it's that bitter, dark chocolate. And it added that bitter flavor, but it was different than adding straight hops to it, which wouldn't be allowed, you know, if you're in the sure, purity sure. law of Germany. Um, and which allowed me to kind of put my spin on everything like that. Sure. No, I think there, you know, that's an, it's, it's such an interesting dynamic looking at the history of this kind of brewing, but also, you know, that brewing history developed in the places that it developed in Europe because those are the ingredients that they had to brew with. You know, they brewed with their own malt, they brewed with their own hops. And these are the beers that you had that came out of it. And so, you know, I, I think you can look at adhering to that tradition, you know, conceptually in two different ways. One is using those same things, or the other way to adhere to that tradition is to use the things that you have um, that are, you know, native and germane and build beers in that kind of similar style using these things that you have, you know, and I think that that kind of framework actually is probably more interesting, you know, um, well, I shouldn't say that. I should say that both of those strategies, I think, can be equally valid. It's interesting that they can both exist. Mm -hmm. And I think that, uh, you know, it's interesting that you chose that path to, like, figure out how to make beers that are in that, you know, inspired by that tradition, but aren't uh, just reproductions of them. And and I know for me and the the other brewers that we have here, it just allows for us to kind of have more fun, but still not stray so far that, you know, we're adding like spaghetti to beer and stuff like that. Um, And so, and you're still winning medals in JBF (laughs) categories with beers that are done this way against more traditionally focused beers, which is also interesting and kind of clever. Yeah. It's uh, we have a lot of fun back there. I mean, our Schwartz beer, uh, another black lager that we brew, and what I when I started drinking Schwartz beer, I was like, all right, this is you know it's thin, it's like a black pilsner. How do we make this more smooth? Let's throw some oats in there. Um, okay, oats is pretty easy to use. Why don't we take oats and toast them in a pizza oven and add just another aspect to it because it will add more layers of flavor that you know if you're just drinking the beer to drink a beer it still tastes good but if you're thinking about it and concentrating on it, you can actually pick out each little ingredient that's allowed to shine it's fun to see that kind of dogmatic approach to lager brewing but then also this kind of creative approach to ingredients let's talk a little bit more about that and i definitely want to talk and uh, get into some of the specifics uh, you know okay. around that dark beer process before we do that a brewery might have 99 problems but your fruit supplier shouldn't be one Old Orchard is already known for their quality concentrates, but they also pride themselves on consistent product and reliable supply. When brewers need assistance, Old Orchard is just an email, phone call, or even a text away. 
based in Greater Grand Rapids, Michigan, better known as Beer City USA. Old Orchard is core to the brewing community. To join their fruit family, learn more at www.oldorchard.com slash brewer. Also for years, Brewery DB has been the industry's only professionally curated source of brewery and beer information. In 2019, over 1 million brewery visits were made by craft fans searching for breweries on brewerydb.com. In just a few weeks, Brewery DB will unveil an all-new experience to help craft lovers get back on the brewery trail. To take full advantage of the enhanced marketing power of Brewery DB and increase your taproom traffic, set up your account on marketmybrewery.com. That's marketmybrewery.com. It's easy and it's free. So, yeah, let's talk about uh, amber and dark lagers. Um, you, you were talking about the Schwartz beer and, and using oats. So let's kind of walk back and, and talk about the the base of that Schwartz, uh, you know, kind of overall grist, how you think about ingredients, how you select ingredients, you know, and how you visualize, you know, kind of work from the flavor you want to achieve um, and build up to that, uh, you know, with those ingredients. Uh, yeah, uh, I learned pretty early on, uh, especially in the pub scene, where uh, if you're trying to decide or you know develop a new type of beer um, within a style, we start just by going out and buying a bunch of beer that you like, and you know of you know you buy a bunch of Hellas, you buy a bunch of Dunkles, and drink them all, and then you know write down notes. I like this. What I like about this one. What aspects I don't like, and then trying to see how we can create a new recipe that will take those you know, that style of beer and bring it to an, an, a new level basically, or a new flavor profile that works within that, that beer, I guess, uh, category, but still, you know, put our own stamp on it at the same time. Um, and then once we figure out what kind of flavors we want, uh, what kind of special ingredient we're going to use, uh, we just start working backwards, you know, from alcohol to IBUs and, um, then it gets our grist bill and our, our hops that we're playing with in each beer. I like that. And, and, um, you know, obviously different people work creatively in different ways. Some Mm -hmm. people work from ingredients and create beers that end up tasting like the ingredients that they've selected intentionally because of that. And the flavor of the beer is a result of that ingredient process. But then it's interesting to, you know, to think about your approach, which is envision the flavor and then build, you know, to create that and uh you know and so as you're tasting through these varying you know kind of commercial examples from other brewers um you know what does that kind of tasting process look like how do you select you know what to taste from and you know how do you think about your preference but also how those beers are going to relate to to individuals who might be drinking the beer yeah um i I would say the consumer is always front of mind because um, when I'm putting our, our product list together, we're trying to make a beer that, you know, a different style of beer for every different person. So some people like hoppy beers, some people like light beers, some dark beers, etc. And I'm trying to make something that they would enjoy, but also kind of you know puts that light bulb moment in their head that I like this, but I've never had something that tasted like this before. Um, and at the same time, we're trying to go for drinkability. And that's a huge part of lagers where I try to hit that you know, basically my brewing philosophy is hit the highest ABV you can with the highest amount of drinkabilities you can at the same time. And so, um, it makes it interesting and a challenge at the same time. But I think those challenges that, you know, we put on ourselves here only make our beer and our product and our experience that you have at Whippy Brewing that much better. Highest ABV. Why? 
it's got to you got to have a, a reason to drink the beer too. <laughs> um, it's just it, it, I, I find it. Um, I'm not a huge session, you know, low ABV beer drinker, um, and so I always try to get. And I'm not saying we're trying to hit like nine percent on everything, but we're trying to, you know, do a light beer that is at least above five percent, a dark beer that, you know, is you know six percent, you know, worthwhile drinking rather than having to. Drink a couple of them and get full, and not really have the, the experience that you're looking for. That's fascinating because that's not a typical philosophy for a lot of lager brewers that I talk to, but um, but kind of interesting nonetheless. Let's walk back a little bit and talk about um, ingredient choice. Okay, you know, so you're you're building say a Schwartz beer base. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, is do you focus heavily on where those ingredients are from? Or do you have a kind of a tasting and evaluation process that goes into deciding how to build the, you know, kind of a malt base for that? Um, we only use Weirman malt for everything. Okay. Um, just for after visiting Bomberg and, I mean, they make the best malt in the world. And it, if I'm going to try to make the You'll best. You'll use American hops, yeah, but, we but use, you will not use, yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, I've been approached by a lot of uh, American maltsters and they, uh, they're making great malt. Uh, it's just... You know, that's where I kind of get stuck a little bit in my own ways that this is what I prefer. And it's really hard to convince me otherwise. Um, we have made other beers here um, with American malt and they just didn't they just didn't have the full flavor. And um, the like uh, the yeast health wasn't as great with those. And that I find that the, the Weirman malt, uh, especially with the step mashing that we're doing, it. it creates a really great environment for our yeast and so we can go pretty far into generations and still have that's actually when we win most of our medals is 12 13 14 generations in what is it about the malt that contributes to that kind of yeast health i think it's um we'll we free up a lot of uh, amino you know a lot of fan in uh the wort that we're producing um and i think it's just creating lots of uh, easy to metabolize simple sugars uh, without giving up the, you know, the body of the beer at the same time. Interesting. So, and then, you know, you mentioned you toast oats to go into this. Is yes. that still part of your process? Uh, it's a little bit more difficult now. We've, uh, <laughs> I think this year we didn't do it cause we, uh, we brewed a lot. We right. doubled production and it was a little bit hard to get into a pizza oven. Um, but that is something that we definitely, we like doing that thing. It makes us feel like we're doing something different. Um, I mean, one of the, I think one of my favorite brews that we do every year is uh, our Throwing Stone Stein beer. Uh, we usually do it in February, so it's like snowing. Uh, you're heating up rocks on a grill all day, which is interesting. We, uh, yeah. we, we have a couple different additions of hot rocks to the beer. Uh, the first one is we take rocks that are um, in a campfire that we're roasting marshmallows over. Cause we, you know, we have a lot of people that come by to, you know, enjoy the process with us. And so we make some s'mores. They bring a lot of people bring like um, special woods that they have, like cherry wood, apple wood, and we smoke it. You know, smoke the rocks um, in the fire, and then we add those rocks to our, our lauder ton. And it's incredible to see the malt as it's coming into contact with those hot rocks, how it crackles, and you can kind of smell some of the wood, some of the smoke, the ash that was coming out of the the fire, and how it's adding to the flavor of the beer in the in the end process. And then uh, we added hot rocks three two to three times during the actual boil and especially when it's cold in february you see this huge chimney of smoke coming or steam coming out of the the kettle and it's just a really cool process and 
those kind of alchemy processes, I think, make our, our beer a little bit different and more enjoyable to brew and drink at the same time. Sure, sure. Um, as we're and let's stick on Schwartz, yep. you know, since we're uh, <laughs> I'm going to try to keep us on on subject there. No, Stein beers are are amazing fun and. Last week on the podcast, Annie was talking. Annie Johnson was talking a little bit about that. And, okay, you know, um, we've we've watched. You know, this it is does seem to be like the last few months for that kind of season, for that. And yep. So um, there's something fun and physical about that process, and I think that uh, you know there's also something just enjoyable about being that connected to uh, you know to this kind of fire and heat and the mm-hmm. kind of uh, alchemical kind of uh, you know functions that transform um, ingredients into beer. <clears throat> but let's um let's stick on that short sh- yeah let's stick on the <laughs> shorts <laughs> i'm drinking the imperial shorts and yep. so if i lose lose track well, of this conversation <laughs> i blame you for that um, because of course we have to drink the eight percent imperial yep. shorts and not just even a regular it is friday shorts. it's friday and it's uh, <laughs> it's a delicious beer and, and incredibly tasty um you know, so we so you use vitamin malts and you built yep. build a mace, uh, base uh, kind of you know grist out of that you use your, uh, you know, your oats. Um, it, you know, you mentioned step mashing before. Do mm-hmm. all of, of your lager beers go through that step mash process? Every single one goes through the same uh, step mashing process uh, or program. Um, I just find it, it's, you know, that it takes us about two hours to do our mash. Um, and I think it really makes that, that the beer just accelerate and ferment well evenly every time that we're brewing it helps with the consistency um and also kind of has a nice balance because we even it out between the the beta amylase rest and the alpha amylase rest so it has a nice balance of simple sugars and then those um you know longer chain sugars to help out with body is it a pretty typical step mash regimen yeah uh 40 minutes at uh, everything's in celsius so sure um around 60 62 and then another 40 minutes at 70 degrees and then we mash out to kind of stop all uh production right right um you know and then you uh, is there a decoction piece of this at all or uh, how do you where, where do you lie on that um we've done a couple of decoctions here uh i haven't really noticed a huge difference on them they're usually when we do those it's usually like a pro beer um and they you know we try to follow exactly their recipe and it's difficult um just as all decoction is um, oh yeah yeah and mm. i just haven't really seen the you know, the addition to our beer from it. So instead of wasting that energy, we just kind of skip that part of the process. Are there um, any other concerns kind of up into this, you know, like boil process, you know, for these, uh, for like a dark lager, like a Schwartz beer, mm-hmm. um, you know, that you find make a difference? Uh, we do 90 minute boils for everything. Um, just cause we are using quite a bit of Pilsner right. malt for our base. Um, and I think that makes a huge difference. If, if somebody, you know, sends me an email complaining about that there's, you know, DM, uh, DMS in our beer, I'm like, you're not drinking our beer because I know I boiled all of that out. <laughs> um, so there's no precursor in there. So um, I, I think that helps with consistency and we get really good evaporation too. And, and you know, especially with uh, making lagers, since it does take, you know, minimum a month to produce everything, um, getting as high a volume as possible is huge for us. Um, just so, and that's one thing that we've been working on a lot this year to help, you know, f- increase efficiency is filling up our kettle as much as we can, boiling it as hard as we can. So we still have that volume and we're, you know, evaporating all TMS precursor and getting really good coagulation of the proteins um, and helps really 
you know, send really clear, true wort to our fermenter so our yeast can, you know, do the best job it can possibly do. Sure, sure. Let's talk about that kind of fermentation process, mm-hmm. you know, with, uh, you know, a, a dark lager like Schwartz beer. Are you using the similar house yeast or same house yeast across all of your lagers? Or, it, uh, yep. Yeah. Um, it is a, uh, you know, proprietary strain that we use from Y yeast. A proprietary yeah. strain. And, it sounds very fancy. Uh, it means I don't tell anybody what it is, but they can find out. <laughs> um, they and so we use that uh, this this yeast strain and kind of how we came I came to it um, as I was writing the business plan, um, still working at Deschutes, and I was home brewing basically out of my van in my uh, driveway. Um, first couple batches did not come out so well with this uh, strain of yeast that I had. Um, next batches came out um, and I actually came home uh, for a couple of days to visit with family and I'm looking at the weather in Oregon and I'm like oh shoot they're having like a a huge heat wave Uh, my beer's gonna be ruined I come back beer you know fermented out put put in lagering tasted great I was like all right I think I found my yeast strain it hit low gravity beer high gravity beer um, had some temperature temperature difference uh, difficulties uh, and still tasted really good. And so I was like, this is our yeast strain and we can keep with it because it can get, it can make the, you know, the session beers and it can also make those high ABV beers and pretty clean at the same time. Yeah. One of the big pieces of, of lager brewing is really, you know, that everyone will mention is understanding your yeast and mm-hmm. then building a system around fermentation that works yep. with your yeast, mm-hmm. you know, and it's such an interesting thing to think about, even like, you know, the way you build tanks and the way you build your process is very tied into what that ingredient is Mm -hmm. and the way that it likes to behave in the environment that it likes. You know, how has that impacted, you know, the way that you've built a fermentation cellar? Uh, We have to buy a lot of tanks is uh, the main (laughs) thing for us. Um, So our fermentation uh, program is minimum two weeks. uh, And we actually hit terminal gravity, I would say seven, eight days in. But the, the yeast that we're using is uh, puts off quite a bit of diacetyl. And so that, that second week is just straight diacetyl rest. And that's what we're waiting for um, before we start, you know, crash cooling and then sending it to the lagering uh, tanks from there. So we knock out at 10 degrees and let it free rise to 12 and just stay at that 12 the entire time. And that allows the yeast to, you know, soak up some of that, that diacetyl, clean up the flavors quite a bit um, before we crash cool it um and then you use a, a multi-tank process then for um you know for aging post-fermentation you correct transfer out at you know, yeah we have uh it's fermentation and conicals then and yeah. then you move into horizontal lager tanks that's correct yeah okay. so we uh ferment in conicals and then crash cool and send to uh, our horizontals um that was the best thing i think we ever did just because after studying in germany and talking to german brewers they they couldn't really put their finger on it they had done a bunch of tests but they couldn't tell you exactly why loggers do better on horizontals um but we wanted to be you know semi-traditional with that and it really helped us out in the beginning because in the those horizontal tanks the yeast flocks out pretty quickly um, especially under you know 10 15 psi um and so we didn't have to buy a filter which is as a brewer is like the best thing in the world because i'm not filtering beer or getting crystal clean beer the longer it sits in the tank and uh, helping with our yields and also just making really awesome beer at the same time. A little bit more shelf stable, I think, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, have you ever, you know, there are 
obviously varying opinions around that. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there are lager brewers that are brewing in single tanks and, and you know, dropping yeast and continue to condition in those those con- uh, slender conicals. And there are, you know, brewers that, uh, you, know, you know, ferment in horizontal, you know, tanks also. Mm-hmm. You know, how, um, you know, how did you decide on this? fermentation and conical in then moving into horizontal lagering tank process the best for you and your yeast um i, I think it was a combination of a couple of things of just what equipment we could buy at the time <laughs> okay um, sure and uh just space you know being able to keep up with production and sales um while you know being able to add as many tanks as possible um so the one thing that I noticed a lot, especially as I was putting the, you know, the cost together of how much it would, you know, take to build up a a brewery. Um, I realized that we had a lot of cost savings if I bought single wall tanks and just put them in a cooler where we also stored our finished product. And as the brewery grew, as we're doing right now, just add more and more horizontals because that's kind of the bottleneck in the, in the, you know, brewing process for us. Um, And so... I liked it um, just from a lager brewer perspective, um, but also at the same time, it really helped out with, you know, being able to plan and um, store beer and just create, you know, I think the best beer that we can possibly make. So which are the single walled tanks that you store? The horizontal lagering tanks are okay. single walls. And they're all inside a larger cold box. Yes. Okay. And with all of our kegs and our cans too. Yeah. Um, and that's less expensive and a broader build out than individually getting double all tanks, glycol, yeah, cooling each one of them. Yeah, huh. uh, I can get about uh, two horizontals stacked on top of each other for the same price as one uh, glycol chilled unit. Yeah, tank. interesting, interesting. Yeah. And and uh, you know, I'm 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 not saying that I can trace any of that back to your pub brewing lineage. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> where, uh, that started where those out. Sing, single wall serving yep. tanks, you know, That's inside exactly a cold box are, are kind of the the thing. But you know. Yeah. Um, actually, at Iron Hill in Pennsylvania, that's all of our. We were the one pub out of this whole um, group that had horizontal serving tanks um, in our cooler. And as I was like, I'm gonna get some of those someday, and they work really well. I, I think it makes our beer that much better. Um, do you employ any special finishing techniques? Um, uh, we carbonate in actually the the lagering tanks. That's new. I would say about 12 months ago. Um, I think that works better just because, you know, we can package basically on demand. And as, you know, demands are changing constantly, it's helped out, uh, helped us be a little bit more nimble. But at the same time, the, you know, as the beer is carbonated, that's helping the yeast flocculate a little bit more. Um, So we're getting cleaner, uh, clearer beers quicker than we used to uh, when we only carbonated in the bright tank. Interesting. Um, I want to talk about some of the other dark lagers that you make, especially yep. the, you know, kind of Volksbier Vienna. Before we do that, the founders launched SS Brewtech with a very clear goal to advance brewing equipment design, performance, and quality to the very highest standards in the industry. With a team that draws upon strong functional backgrounds in brewing science, mechanical engineering, industrial design, supply chain, and manufacturing, SS Brewtech has the people and skill sets you want and expect from your supplier of pro brewing equipment head over to ssbrewtech.com for more information on their brew houses and brewing gear also when it comes to brewing nobody has your back like clarion because their food grade lubricants are formulated to help make your brewing system 100 food safe that means when you switch to clarion you can put the costly potential of contamination and recall 
out of your mind. All you need to worry about is brewing great beer, and since you already do that, well, it's more like focusing on business as usual. Go to clarionlubricants.com to learn more. So we've talked about Schwartz, and we've used that as an overarching way to work through your entire, uh, you know, kind of lager process. But let's talk about um, you know, the the Vienna lager and then some of the other dark lagers that you brew. Um, you know, where do you where do you you know find inspiration for the Vienna uh, for the Vienna, and how did you put this Wibby spin on that, which uh, you seem to want to place on uh, all the lagers that you brew? Um, so our Volksbier Vienna. Uh we just, I, you know, with our product lineup, I was looking for something that kind of hit some of those light beer drinkers, but had a little bit more malt flavor to it. Um, still approachable because it's got a low IBU. It's 5.5%. Very easy fall crushable drinker all day. Um, it's personally like the we put it on tap just because it was a beer I wanted to drink and our, our brewers wanted to drink. Um, so... I think that's kind of where the motivation for making that beer came from. Uh, and Vienna, I mean, honestly, it's a humongous craft style mm-hmm. on the strength of one beer in particular, you know, with Sam Adams Boston Lager being that kind of Vienna that everybody, or Vienna style lager, I should yep. say, that that people are common with. And so, you know, it's, when it comes to craft beer drinkers, like, they actually understand Vienna, even if they don't know that they understand <laughs> Vienna. Been even around they for a while. They don't know that they're, they're drinking it. Right, yeah. right. Um, I do remember while I was studying in Germany, uh, one of the professors came back from a conference in Mexico and he just, he's like, Negro Modelo is the best Vienna I've ever had. And I was like, okay, I want to make something that's somewhere around Negro Modelo. And so, um, those are definitely some of the, you know, Sam Adams, Negro Modelo, or some inspiring beers to make our, uh, to influence us to make our Volksbier Vienna. Sure. So, uh, what's your spin on it then? Uh, not a huge it's all Weirman malt, so it's very traditional in the malt base. Um, their Kara Munich, the Kara Munich one is what we, we use for that. And it's just, it makes the beer just look pretty. Uh, the color is awesome. Um, our spin is just using, you know, Mount Hood hops as our um, our hops for that one. And they're low, low alpha, easy to use, derivative of, um, you know, traditional German hops. And I think that really kind of makes the beer balance out really well. When you um, when you think about the flavor, how do you describe that the flavor of the beer in your mind? Oh, that's uh, caramely and but uh, caramely, but like not cloying at all. It's just it, uh, it gives you a lot of that malt flavor up front, uh, but finishes very crisp and clean, like a, a you know pilsner or something like that. Um, yeah. Are there any other um, kind of concerns that, that beer raises through the brewing process, or is it uh, pretty akin to your regular lager process? It, um, I mean, we're just trying to keep up with sales right now. It's uh, <laughs> after we won the gold last year. I mean, we would make that beer maybe twice a year. Sure, sure. Now we're making it, you know, twice a week. And wow, and it it's just hitting. I think something different. Uh, there's, you know, a lot of other breweries in the area that are renowned for their pilsner, and so it's kind of hard to break into that space because I mean they make a really great pilsner. And so if we have, you know, our Vienna has that different color, so it looks different. It kind of approaches a different beer drinker, um, and it's just super crushable. Um, but you know, you still know that you're drinking a craft beer when you're drinking that. That it's such a fascinating thing to see that that um, you know, for a lot of breweries of various parts of the the country and the world, like having 
the right beer that's just a little bit different and that fits into the kind of tap lists yep. given where it is can make such a huge difference. We see that like, um, you know, KC beer company yep. out in Very. Kansas city, like their Dunkel is the biggest beer that they make and it's on tap everywhere. And this is an estate that's an Anheuser-Busch state and Anheuser-Busch has pale lager. They've got it all covered. Yep. You know, nobody's going to not have their pale lager <laughs> on tap. But nobody makes that kind of darker lager. And so KC Beer has just found that niche and that Dunkel is on tap everywhere. And so I think it's also fascinating to think about, like for you all to have the validation of a gold medal, you know, from the Great American Beer Festival to have this amber lager, you know, in a state around here where, again, like you say, there are some really fantastic pale lager makers won't name any names. I think everybody knows who they are. Some of them have been on the podcast before. Um, you know, but to have something that can hit a different note and still find a place on those tap lists, yep. um, you know, and then from those tap lists, find a, a market even in, in stores or restaurants who want to serve this kind of thing, especially those restaurants who have customers that like that amber lager. They may have had that other one that came from the East Coast, and now they want to have something similar from a, a award-winning local brewery. Creates an opportunity for you. I also made the the label art for the can too, so um, that's how I spent shut down. <laughs> was learning graphic design, okay. and um, I think that's really helped out with the sales of that beer. And you know, we put the label on a truck, and it, it just it looks fun to drink, and it's. You know, that's what we're trying to do is just be approachable and easy to get along with is kind of what we're looking for. Sure, sure. Um, speaking of Dunkel, let's talk about your Moondor Dunkel. Yep. And, uh, you know, now you mentioned that the your, the Wibby spin on that is Cocoa Nibs. Mm-hmm. Talk to me, uh, you know, a little bit about the kind of, you know, ingredient formation of that beer. Um, it's actually cacao. So oh, it's, cacao uh, nibs. Uh, so it's completely vegan. Okay. Um, actually, all of our beers, I think, are vegan. Um and the cacao, it's... There's a difference there? Uh, it doesn't have milk chocolate in it. Oh, okay. And um, I think that's what makes the difference with the uh, cacao because it's super dense, bitter chocolate. Like when you when you eat it, it's, I mean, it's not very enjoyable to eat, but you can smell it in the beer when we're, you know, we put it in the boil. It's the last 15 minutes of the boil, and it just adds that extra dimension for that beer and helps it stand out from, you know, the other dunkles that you'll find in the area it's awesome what is that what's the overall malt bill look like for that uh it's pilsner uh i think there's some chocolate and uh munich too we use a lot of munich too environment it's very versatile adds a lot of that body it, keep, it keeps the chewiness to the beer um, whereas if we just had pilsner to everything it would it would be just too thin i think especially for that style um and the chocolate malt that we're getting is, uh, that's actually the one non-vireman <laughs> malt that we use. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, the English make just really great, awesome chocolate malt. And it, I think it really kind of rounds out that, that flavor profile. When, you, when you're when you using, you know, uh, cacao nibs mm-hmm. in that last 15 minutes of the boil, what, what kind of quantity per barrel do you tend to find yourself using to accomplish that? Um, when we first started, it was much higher. Uh, I think it was like 16 or 17 barrels, um, which is not very cost prohibitive. And it really, I, I did one batch just like to see what had happened if I halved it and it tasted the same. It didn't taste the same. It tasted, I think, better. And um, we kind of just been zoning in on around, I think it's like 
you know, a pound per barrel or something like, or half a pound per barrel, um, for each moon door that we brew. Yeah. 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 No, it's interesting. Cause you know, even with hops, there are some noble hops expressions that I would describe as chocolatey and earthy yep. and maybe even a little bit dusty. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and so the idea and thinking about that, um, and that flavor impact of, of cocoa nibs actually kind of makes sense that you are achieving that kind of flavor contribution that's positive and intentional in the beer and doing it through that ingredient versus, you know, a specific kind of, you know, hops addition, which, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's kind of clever. It's, uh, it's kind of, that's what we, you know, that's the challenge right there is trying to be, you know, different but not too overboard where it's very intentional and it stays within style um uh, and still you know we want to hit you know with our the people that i envision drinking our beer is people have been drinking craft beer for ages and enjoy it because they know how hard it is to make a good lager that you know it's crisp and clean but then there's other people that we're trying to convert from coors light and bud light that just like drinking beer and that we want to have them drink beer, but something that's a little bit more flavorful and locally made. When you enter it into a competition, do mm-hmm. you note that ingredient? Uh, yes. Really? Yeah. Okay. Um, I think that I just put in like the special instructions and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, cause I, I think you probably not do that and <laughs> you know, it might not be that apparent even, yeah. you know, to judges, but it, it's, but then when you do it, it creates an interesting expectation around it that uh you know someone starts looking for yeah it. they start looking for that and uh, our dunk our moondor dunkle is always the highest you know one of the highest rated beers consistently through competition um i personally think it's just because it's a great beer but also having those different ingredients play well with each other and you know noting that in the the entry when we're sending beer in it helps out quite a bit too how um you know since since you also mentioned that you build that identity for it how how do you how do you articulate the flavor of Moondor Dunkel, you know, and how would that differ from, you know, say some other Dunkels, you know, that, that you, you know, clear, clearly uh, benchmark against? Uh, I think the main goal for the Dunkel with me was uh, making sure we were making a dark lager that wasn't sweet and cloying that you could have a couple of. And so that was like the main thing is getting that uh, fermentation gravity down as far as we could. So it was super dry um and but still having those roasty you know know, chocolate and nut flavors towards the front but still mainly having a a light to medium body with something that you can have you know two or three of Uh, that was the main thing for me because i I remember drinking some dunkles as we were you know developing the beer and you they tasted great but I'd only have one, maybe two, because it was just, you know, you could feel sweaters on your teeth and stuff like that. And I wanted to have something that was a little bit more dry and easier to drink and have a couple more of. As, as I'm drinking it now, you know, you're right. There is that nuttiness and there's that kind of, it plays that mental game of trying to convince you that it's sweet. But then, you know, it just pulls way back from that. And, uh, you know, it has that kind of... Um, you know, I'd almost describe it like in a color of going 
a little bit, you know, kind of brown and caramelly to this kind of bluish, you know, tint to it, where <laughs> like it kind that. of cools down, you know, pretty quickly yep. into, um, you know, and then into this incredibly dry finish. You know, what what is the what's the gravity of this beer when it finishes? Uh, it starts out at like 13, 13.5 and finishes around like 2.53. And there is a, a you know kind of a crisp bitterness to it, although I hate, I hate using the word crisp because I think it's <laughs> massively overused in the world of lagers. Snappy, yeah, snappy. snappy. I like that. <laughs> I like that. There is a, a snappy bitterness to that. How much of that um, you know do you credit to the coconut or cacao nib uh, you know bitterness versus uh, hops bitterness? Um, I think we we register it or we describe it as like a thirty five IBU beer um, in the. Malt, you know, in our brew house calculations, only about twenty-three of those IBUs actually come from hops. Interesting. Um, so it's about a third of the hop, of the the bitterness that you're you're tasting is coming from those cacao nibs that are um, just adding, imparting a different bitterness to it. Uh, you know, similar to you know people using spruce tips, like a spruce tip IPA type of thing, but more on the dark side. Yeah, it's kind of fascinating now, and you the nutty na- nature of this is all coming out of the Munich malt and mm-hmm. uh, and some of the chocolate malt. Chocolate malt, um, and there's a little bit of Kara Munich malt in there too. Yeah, it's uh, making that malt bill not you know using as many different ingredients without making it kind of a soup you know just a soup of different you know ingredients to make a beer. Uh, trying to stick to as few as possible to create that complexity is huge for us. And because you love ABV, you also create a double dunkel version of, <laughs> of this beer. Yes. Um, what is the what's the difference between those two? Uh, lots more malt. Uh, we max out our brew house at like thirteen hundred pounds with that that batch. Um, it's it fights us basically the whole way. Uh, we still use some cacao in the boil for the double dunkel, um, but it really you know you know the gravity for double dunkel I think starts off at. 1920 play-doh um and then in the lagering tank we actually add more cacao and uh, vanilla beans that we we chop up so it gets that nice chocolate vanilla blend to it um you know the the combination of those two flavors i mean is a a winner i think anywhere you you put them uh just kind of has that s'mores marshmallow vanilla you know goodness that is perfect to drink next to a fire is you know what we're shooting for and again, you are playing with the psychology of, of taste and that, you know, when people taste vanilla, it tastes sweeter to them. Yep. And, you know, and so it builds this idea of sweetness without the actual sweetness, which mm-hmm. kind of maintains that drinkability to yep. it. Yeah. And uh, we find that that's one of our beers that ages the best. Um, the, I, I feel like the vanilla is pretty aggressive at first when we first package it. But it tends to mellow out really well. Um, since everything is unfiltered, there is, you know, maybe slow, but it's still maturing in the can or in the keg, um, you know, as it's being stored until being consumed. How much? I mean, vanilla is not a cheap ingredient. Thankfully, it's cheaper now than it was a year or two yeah. ago. But, uh, <clears throat> um, you know, how much vanilla does it take in a, a double dunkle? And where does double dunkle finish? You know, how much vanilla are you putting into that to kind of round that out? It's about two and a half to three pounds uh, per 30 barrels. Okay. Um, which is like, it's insane amount of vanilla. <laughs> it's, it, it, I remember every time I buy those vanilla packages, like, wow, that was $5,000 right there. <laughs> yeah. um, but it really just, I mean, we can't get rid of it just because it does add the complexity. Uh, it does make it stand out. And, and, you know, there's 
as a brewer, you know, you make beers to make money, you make beers to be a brewer and enjoy and, you know, kind of push the boundaries of what we're doing. And that's one of those where you don't need to make the margin on it. You're just going to keep doing it the way you want to do exactly, it. Exactly. Yeah. That makes the beer. And it's, uh, it's really fun for us because we make extra batches that will, will barrel age. So we've done some in, um, rum barrels. We've done some bourbon barrels, um, some with extra vanilla added in those rum barrels, which was very delicious and just a new way to kind of, you know, take a, one brand and, you know, extend it a little bit further. Sure, sure. Let's talk about other other dark lagers that you make. We've talked about the Vienna. We've talked about Dunkel. We've mm-hmm. talked about Schwartz beer. Um, um, the Storbach that you started off today, uh, I love that beer. Um, this past winter, we we kind of took a different philosophy of just making sure all tanks were full all the time. And for me, that was, you know, I'd have a day by myself just making whatever beer I felt like making that day. Um, so Storbach, uh, it's 8.4% uh, Imperial Schwartz. Um, it's a recreation of one of the last beers I made while I stayed in Germany. Um, and we called it the Storbach, which is like loose translation to Failbach, uh, because everything messed up that day. The <laughs> boiler broke down. Uh, the heat exchanger was jammed. We pitched yeah. yeast. It didn't really start fermenting. Um, and then a couple months later, I got an email from my professor over there and he said he put it on tap for the next class I was coming through. Um, and at the same time, there's this Russian class that, you know, they kind of stick to themselves because they don't speak English as well as everybody else. And he said people were drinking the Storbach and the Russians were standing up on tables and the <laughs> girls were taking their shirts off. And I was like, I'd, I mean, every time I had an interview for a brewing job, that's what I would tell them because that's better than any medal that you can ever win is, you know, people loving your beer so much they're standing up on tables, I think. <laughs> so um, with that Storbach, um you know, are there any other peculiar, other than overcoming failure, yeah. <laughs> other uh, uh, interesting elements of, you know, either the ingredient base for it or, you know, kind of mash or uh, fermentation process? Um, so we used a lot of chocolate wheat in that, um, which I helped. It's kind of similar to using the oats in our uh, Schwibby Schwartz, uh, smooths out that body, uh, makes it a little bit more creamy. Um we use a lot of carafa, so even though it is super dark, it doesn't have a lot of that uh, dark bitterness that you get from you know dark roasted malts, um, which I, I think allows us to play a little bit more in the dark beer space because we can add some more stuff in without having a you know the very bitter astringency that you get from dark malt. Um, along with that, since it was winter and it was COVID, so we had a lot of tank space it lagered for like six weeks uh which i think allowed for all those you know the, for a high abv beer a high abv beer to just mellow out a little bit more and just be that much more smooth and i think it was just taking our beer and bring it to the next level sure sure what and what's your normal lagering time for a typical um, beer minimum two weeks we yeah. try to go as long as we can um right now we're averaging around like three and a half weeks how much how much beer are you guys making this year uh we're shooting for i think 5500 barrels of beer we did about 4000 last year uh we were on track to do about 5500 but obviously that got changed it's a tough one when that you know when you're pushing lager out into a kind of you know broader world of distribution because mm-hmm. it's very hard to make back from it you know now thankfully they tend to be less expensive beers to brew <laughs> generally speak generally speaking you know 
broadly. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a different equation when you're serving it here out of, out of your own beer garden. And it is a humongous space that you guys have here now outdoors, you know, for mm-hmm. people to enjoy beer, which is just wonderful. And then helps you kind of help support all, all of that piece. Um, you know, has that different consumption mode over the past year impacted you all one way or another? Um, it's, you know, a challenge and a blessing. Uh, we were really fortunate here uh, to have about 40,000 square feet of outdoor space. So yeah. we can, you know, we have about 100 tables, which are all at least six feet, if not, you know, further sure. spaced out. Um, and then we, we use a contactless ordering uh, platform, uh, which not only helps our, our staff say you know, stay safe and not have to closely interact as much as they used to with our customers, um, which we still encourage because we love everybody. Um, but it's, you know, helped us quite a bit where, you know, we were testing our staff every two to three weeks last year and uh, knock on wood, we didn't have a, a positive test. Um, we're still doing it. And then we have rapid tests, which helps out a little bit more. Um, so it's allowed us to have a really nice space where there could be, you know, a very full beer garden. But at the same time, since we're outdoors, everyone feels safe. And, you know, we're, we're doing our protocols to make sure that everyone is continuing to not contract this, at least while they're at work. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. Um, what's uh, what's the weirdest lager that you brew? Oh, weirdest. That's a hard one. Um, I think the weirdest we've ever done... Our Velvet Schrapenator this year was our first kind of crack at a Doppelbach. Um, I think we got really creative with it where we took a couple kegs and filled them with cherries and berries um, and aged it for about three months on on those. And then we had this really nice cold snap in the middle of March uh, where we're like well below uh, zero degrees Fahrenheit and put those kegs outside and it, it froze you know it took four kegs and froze them down to like basically a case and a half of beer and it's very strong <laughs> and it's uh it's it's we had you these ice boxed it in kegs yeah in kegs and okay. then we extracted it and um i mean it left about 25 to 30 percent of the the water weight left and i mean we bring them out every once in a while when you know somebody's having a birthday or like us, you know, guys in the back are having a bad day or something like that. It's <laughs> crack open an ice box and we'll, you know, cheers together and enjoy it. It's a, uh, it's a really great take on our, our strongest beer that we make. And then, um, kind of adds those more flavors with the cherries and the icing and it just makes it that much better. So did you bottle that one? Yeah, we did bottle, we hand bottled it. <laughs> uh, and it was like, uh, a little over carbonated. So it kind of took a little bit of effort, Yeah, but we got like a case and a half out of like four <laughs> kegs. Yeah. Yeah. No. Um, what's, uh, what's on your lager experimentation radar right now? Right now. What are you really excited about, um, exploring? Um, our, more of the hobby side. Uh, we've been having a lot of fun, uh, doing our rotational IPLs this year. So, uh, right now we have on tap our, uh, six foot four and full muscle. Uh, it's a, IPL made with only uh, Southern Hemisphere hops. Um, and so it, I, I fell in love with uh, YET hops. They're low ABV or low alpha, uh, high oil content. And so, I mean, it just, 
you can add so many hops to this beer. The wort comes out green after you whirlpool it. And I mean, it just adds a, a new dimension to our hoppy beers program that we're having here. How do you, um, how do you build a, a lager base to support that kind of crazy, um, you know, kind of hop heavy, uh, approach? Um, so one thing about lagers that, you know, just with the experience that I've had, um, since you are making very crisp, clean, uh, you're not really tasting the, the yeast as much, um, you know, compared to like a Belgian or an ale, um, it allows those ingredients to shine that much more, uh, which I think is a great showcase for them. And so we've been adding for these IPLs, we've been just adding all the hops within the last 15 minutes. It's a, for me, it's a really weird way to brew because you're sitting there for the first hour of the boiling. You're like, oh, <laughs> right, so right. what am I supposed to do? Um, but it really just adds, you can still get the bitterness that you're looking for. You're still adding them with 15 minutes to go. There's yeah. a lot of ale brewers <laughs> that are not even doing it during the boil anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's, exactly. It's all going into Whirlpool. So. Um, and it, uh, you still get the bitterness that we're looking for. Um, and their hop aromas are just that great. And so uh, for malt side on that, we're, I'm trying to make as light of a malt bill as possible. So we can just really showcase the hops on those types of beers. When you say light, what does that mean? Uh, all Pilsner for sure. Um, and then we've been using uh, rice syrup solids every here and there to, you know, create a much drier beer, but also uh, hitting the gravities that we want without hatching. Still, still trying to hit that ABV. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's uh, our, Right now, one of our beers called Wibby Jibbies. We call it a session IPL because it, it does drink. It's super light and you can drink it, but it's uh, made with uh, citra and uh uh, Mandarina Bavaria hops, and even though it's six percent, uh, it drinks like a session IPL. You call it, it a session beer, and it's six yeah. percent. Oh man, we're gonna trigger some folks out there today. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, are are there any other fun brewing experiences that you've engaged in? And I love this because when I walk in and I I, I you know take a look in the tap room, you know, here's this lager focused brewery with this giant outdoor beer garden. You know, the tap board is full of lagers. There's a couple of ales in there, you know. Um, but then you've also got frozen drink machines on the bar to, to keep <laughs> some people happy. And so so your approach to this kind of, you know, tradition and expectation, but also creating a hospitable place for people to come to drink, mm-hmm. you know, it's not an absolute adherence to some old school model of this. Yep. It is definitely kind of a hybrid approach of those two. Um, you know, are there other kinds of, you know, lager hybrid ideals that you're uh, employing in other parts of the brew house or, uh, you know, in, in the beers that you make? Um, I would say that, you know, we're, you know, we were during the shutdown, we were in uh, talks with a, another brewery to collaborate and making um, Baltic Porter. And the idea that I really liked about that is kind of, you know, Baltic Porter is the mix of you know, a porter and like a lager at the same time. So trying to hit those types of flavors um, that you would expect from a porter, but doing it on the lager side is definitely something we're looking for. Um, I, I mean, everything that we're looking, when I'm looking at making a beer or trying to explore, you know, what lagers have to offer, it's always like, all right, yeah, an ale or an IPA brewer can make this type of flavor. What, how we try to put that into lager form how can we make sit hit those similar flavors but still have a crisp clean finish from a cold fermented 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 lager um 
that's aged well at the same time. So um, that's kind of where the challenge is for us. I think um, listening to our consumers is the big thing, uh, especially during the summer. Uh, light, crushable beer is huge for us. Uh, we just started our, our Mexican lager release it yesterday. Um, and, you know, when we did the, the recipe development for that, it was, you know, I went to the liquor store and I bought Dos Equis and Corona and, you know, basically every standard Mexican lager you can get. And I didn't want to make, you know, we would taste them with the, the beer that had lime in it and without the lime in it. And I designed the beer to be better with the lime because I thought that was adding to the experience of the beer. If it's going to be a Mexican lager, it should have a lime in it and it should taste better with it than it does without. Still doesn't mean it doesn't taste great without the lime, but it's more enhanced by that, you know, tradi- you know the you know what you expect from a Mexican lager is by adding a lime to it to make it taste that You didn't better. just put the lime into the beer itself? Nope, no lime into that. Matt yeah. Reynoldson did in their 805 Cerveza. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> it's uh, And that one is really good, by it's, the way. It, I always uh, get scared of putting those kinds of ingredients directly into the beer because I you know dosing and how do you do that without being overpowering and stuff like that is um, you know it's a, a nuanced art to it and I, I get a little scared sometimes and so uh, we try to err on the side of safety and drinkability than anything else for sure for sure so what uh, what success look like for Wibby what is um What's the, uh, you know, the end vision for this brewery? Where would you like, what would you like to achieve and uh, how will you know and define uh, success? Uh, I think, because I actually had a dream about this the other day too, and that reminded me of it. Um, I feel like if I'm at a point where I have a home office that has its own like five to 10 barrel brewing system in it, where I can just make beer that I want to make at home and, you know, because the brewery's running fine on its own at that point, <laughs> and uh, and kind of get to experiment and ha- and just you know re kind of connect with you know the you know the original experience of just making beer. Uh, that's what I see as success. Uh, obviously, we you know are trying to. We had a lot of really great partners that helped us get this place um, you know up and running in the first place. Um, so making sure that they're taken care of. Um, and they kind of experience what they helped us build, I think is a huge, um, you know, sense of pride for us. And so people that, you know, really helped us out, understand what kind of community we are really creating here in Longmont. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. It's funny that you mentioned that because I, I've seen it over and over again. It was uh, John Meyer from Rogue who bought yeah. some bought some five barrel SS Brutech systems, you know, to put into you know kind of pilot. And man, it was he having fun brewing on those. And then of course, you know, Vinny and Russian River they just got their five barrel pilot system up and running. They had when I was out there a couple of years ago, he had the, he showed me the room, you know, but they didn't have the system in. Well, they've got it all in, and you know, it is. It, you, when you see that kind of love of brewing where that desire to, you know, as big of a business as you've built, wanting to get back and just brew beer and uh, and also enjoy and experiment and, and kind of test those kinds of creative ideas. It's a meditation. Yeah. That's how I've always felt about it. It's just like, I mean, all these enzymes and, you know, microorganisms are going to do whatever they're going to do. But if we, if you can figure out how to control them and enhance it, and to do 
you know, envision that while you're, you know, listening to music as loud as possible that no one else wants to listen to and making the beer that you want to make that no one really cares that you're making. That's what I really want to do is just make, have that experience for myself. For sure. For sure. We'll rock and roll. Yeah. <laughs> G&D Chillers is the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling. Crisp Scottish pale ale malt is the workhorse of many a brewery. Tricraft juice concentrates from Old Orchard. Set up your account on marketmybrewery.com today. Let SS Brewtech outfit your brew house and gain peace of mind with Clarion Lubricants. Of course, if you'd like to support this very podcast, go to beerandbrewing.com, click on the subscribe button. And if you're a pro brewer, considering our, uh, consider our new all-access pro subscriptions that combine both magazines, exclusive online content, and more. Um, Ryan, if people want to learn more about Wibby Brewing, where do they find you? Uh, you can go to our website, www.wibbybrewing.com, or find us on Facebook. Um, we do a lot of events here on a huge uh, beer garden. Um, free, ticketed, um, special events are really great for us here. So it's a great way to experience the, the realm of loggers that we have. Fantastic. Well, speaking of that realm of loggers, we're going to check out here and uh, I might have to enjoy another one out here on the <laughs> patio on this uh, wonderful, beautiful afternoon outdoors. Thanks for joining me on the podcast, Ryan. Thanks Cheers. for having me on. Yeah, cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.